Hi, I'm Hank Green, and welcome to the NerdCon Stories podcast, where we bring you the discussions, Q&As, and panels that were recorded during the first annual NerdCon Stories, which took place October 9th and 10th, 2015, in the absolutely fabulous Minneapolis, Minnesota. In this episode, you will be hearing the panel Connecting Through Stories, Communities, and Fandom. Stories have always brought people together. How have these communities changed throughout history, and how will they continue to change in the digital age? This panel was moderated by Leslie Dotsis and featured Cecil Baldwin, Paul DeGeorge, Sarah Mackey, and Paul Saborin. The introductions on the recording of this panel got a bit cut off, so we're just going to jump right in at the beginning of the discussion. Enjoy. Also, I wanted to let you know that tickets for NerdCon Stories 2016 are now on sale. NerdCon Stories will be taking place October 14th and 15th, 2016 at the Minneapolis Convention Center. Go to nerdcon.com to get your ticket now. We hope to see you there. You should all sign up at nanorimo.org, and I have stickers. <laughs> Hi, everybody. Uh, my name is Cecil Baldwin. Um, I'm an actor, and uh, I, I, I guess my most, uh, most popular gig is uh, as the voice of Cecil Palmer on Welcome to Night Vale, the podcast. And... <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Yeah, I guess it might be. Uh, maybe. Um, but I also, uh, I work uh, in theater and film uh, and uh, doing things such as uh, working with the neo-futurists, uh, doing Too Much Light Makes the Baby Go Blind, which is our ongoing, ever-changing attempt to perform 30 plays in 60 minutes every Friday and Saturday night. Um, and I've also done a couple of uh, other, just, you know, more traditional theater work as well. So that's me. Hi. Don't apply. That's fine. <laughs> Hi, I'm Paul DeGeorge. Um, I play in a band with my brother called Harry and the Potters. Thank you. And, and I co-founded a nonprofit organization uh, 10 years ago called the Harry Potter Alliance. Uh, and the Harry Potter Alliance works to turn fans into heroes and to use the power of story to get fans to engage in social change and harness the power of fandom to create good things in the world. And uh, it was actually 10 years ago exactly uh, tomorrow. So we're having a Harry Potter Alliance birthday party tomorrow. So join us at 6 o'clock tomorrow. That's a little plug there. But uh, I also created the Golden Snitchwitch, which is a uh, sandwich based on a story. It's a peanut butter and golden graham sandwich, and you can catch it in your mouth just like Harry Potter did in his first Quidditch match. They're for sale at, uh, at the back. Joe? Yeah. $3 uh, for an extra dollar. He'll sculpt it into the shape of a snitch and throw it at you, and you can catch it in your mouth. My name... My name is Paul Saborin. I am one half of the comedy music duo Paul and Storm. I, I don't do anything remotely as noble as any of these other people down the table. I like to attend theater and films. And I have eaten sandwiches on multiple occasions. Uh, but I, I am also, along with Storm, uh, we are two of the co-producers of the annual Jonathan Colton fan cruise called Joko Cruise. And I'm done. <laughs> and I'm Leslie Datsis. I'm going to be your moderator today. I run the web series, YouTube web series, One Time Stories. <laughs> Look at those 10 people that know me. <laughs> YouTube.com slash One Time Stories. Okay. <laughs> All right, so I wanted just to start with something simple and you know something basic. So, um, what was the first community, online or offline or any line, that made you want to make things? Oh man, um, I was kind of uh, drafted into the Doctor Who fandom by my dad. <laughs> Um, it, it's 
specifically Doctor Who, but also of the Star Trek and uh, Star Wars and other sort of nerdy variety. Um, but I remember my dad dragging me to uh, a original Doctor Who. Uh, you get to like, you know, look at the costumes and set pieces that they would literally like uh, sort of drag all over the country and. Um, I don't know, like it, it just seemed very like kind of magical and special to see something that I saw on TV uh, like right in front of me where you could actually touch it and you know go up to it. And I thought that was the first time that you know something that was a story had been you know kind of made flesh in front of me. Um, yeah, and I sort of continue in that world today. Uh, when I was four, I read this book that I was an early reader. Um, I read this book that I was completely obsessed with and my mother hated it and therefore one day to avoid reading it to me for the 50th time, um, she said, why don't you write a story? Um, and so I wrote what I now know is like fan fiction of this early reader chapter book that I was reading at the time. <laughs> Extremely derivative fan fiction of this early reader chapter book. Um, and, it, and my mother typed it up for me on our typewriter because I'm older than a lot of you. Um, and then I illustrated it myself. So my mom still has this in a, in a filing cabinet somewhere. And when I went back, when I started working for NaNoWriMo, I went to look for my first novel. And I was like, you know, fan fiction, it, it's a gateway drug in so many ways. And for me, the gateway started at four years old with my truly terrible four-year-old fan fiction. What, what, what was the book? It's a book called Little O. Um, I don't even remember who the author is. I should look it up and like read the book again now, but. Um, I think my first experience was maybe less with like story and more with music where um, I just, there were, I was in high school really into music, but then I just kind of became part of like the community of people who were making music and playing in like bands and church basements and that sort of thing, you know? And so I just remember there being some bands that were just a few years older that I really looked up to and I was like, man, that's something I can do. You know, like these guys are just like a couple years older and they figured out how to play these instruments. And so um, that was probably my moment in, within like a type of fandom that sort of inspired me to start creating was just seeing these other people do it and going for it. Uh, for me, uh, I don't know if it qualifies as a fandom necessarily, but uh, three television shows, Sesame Street, The Electric Company, and then The Muppet Show. Yes. Um, thank you, references. Uh, but the reason I loved them and, and, and they meant something in particular to me was uh, it was watching those shows where I realized that, first of all, you could be as silly as you wanted to, uh, and it was an okay thing, uh, and I was a very silly kid. And also, it was where I first realized that a, you know, music or a sketch could accomplish multiple things at the same time. It could just be this goofy story, but also over here, you happen to be learning a thing, even if that thing is what the letter E is. Mm -hmm. uh, and that was sort of a, a mini profound thing for, for little me uh, to realize that, you know, that these things could accomplish multiple goals and be entertaining at the same time, and I, I, I really wanted a piece of that. Great, so my personal one was when I was, all I had exposure to in any time of like performance was the annual Christmas cantata that I had to put on at my church. <laughs> and so I would play like Gabriel or something, which doesn't make any sense at all. Um, Backwoods, Mississippi, hello. and. <laughs> Uh, that it really kind of brought me to learning more about, oh, people can like perform lines in front of people, and I want to make those lines sometimes. So that, that was what was really interesting to me. So when we look at all of these uh, communities, when we look back on all the stuff that had inspired us to make things, and you see these brand new communities that are just popping out of nowhere, these pro projects that uh, inspire people to make, you know, their own form of fan fiction or fan art or anything like that. What, uh, how is that, a, how is, what's the evolution of that? Like, what is different from what it was in the past to now? One of the things that's so interesting about NaNoWriMo is that it started in 1999. 
um, and has continued since then. But in the time that it's happened, um, it sort of mirrors the arc of the internet becoming mainstream. And I remember in 1999, sorry, 2000 was the first year when I had a summer job at a library and the IT guy at the library said, hey, you should switch to this search engine called Google. It's really good. And like, <laughs> I literally remember the moment in my life when I went to Google for the first time. I was like, wow, this is way better than Alta Vista. Like, uh -huh. <laughs> um, and so that timeline really mirrors like when NaNoWriMo has become big. And I think that that's part of the reason that it's become such a phenomenon is because it's been growing along with the growth of the internet. And when I started doing NaNoWriMo in 2002, it was still really weird to hang out with people from the internet. And so I went to my first write-in and my mom was like, okay, like, who are you going to this thing with? And I was like, people from the internet? And she was like, mm. like make sure I know where you're going because this could be like weird and creepy people. And then now it's like, here we all are in Minneapolis together with people from the internet and it's not really that weird anymore. So I think that that's the way that, that the way that we communicate with each other has changed so much because of the internet, but the ways, the, the things that we're saying when we communicate with each other haven't changed that much. We're still saying the same things, it's just so much easier to say them to each other. We're not mailing zines around to each other, you know, it's... Yeah, I, that's a great point, and I think in addition to like the, the methods of communication, there's also the, the tools for creating and for making fan works. Um, it, whether it's music or writing, there's a lot more, uh, it's just easier to uh, create culture now and and make that culture accessible. Everybody kind of has their own platform for releasing content now. Even if you're not a big celebrity or anything, you can still put stuff out there and people can find it. And that in turn allows for these supportive communities to kind of pop up. And um, it's great to get feedback as a creator and these communities enable that. And that I think in turn, fosters um, and grows creators. My husband went to a Star Trek convention in like 1994 and his stories about that compared to like how Star Trek conventions are now are just mind-blowing and how things have changed. Yeah. Is there anything that has remained constant over time? I mean I think the people, the way people uh, kind of take in these stories has changed but it's like the stories themselves kind of remain the same like if you're passionate about something you're going to be passionate about it I think it's just the frequency and the you know the the sort of immediacy of it so like going back to that oh I'm sorry of <laughs> that story of like you know going to see these like Doctor Who you know sort of old British cast-offs from like BBC you know this was like that was the only way you could indulge in that sort of fandom at that time, you know, unless you like actually went to the BBC offices in England, you know, and now, you know, you kind of just, you know, type that into a search engine and, you know, you're like, oh look, here's, you know, 5,000 chat rooms about, you know, all these different things. You can kind of go down the different alleyways. And I think it's up to, you know, us uh, who are kind of, you know, existing on the internet to really just, um, you know, be smart about how you filter all of that information. You know, you, you've kind of got to look at all the options and, and kind of figure out what alleys you want to go down and, you know, what pathways you want to go. And, you know, you kind of have to constantly be, you know, mindful of like where that is going. I don't know if that was answered to your question <laughs> at all, but, you know, there we go. It works. I think too, like the, the thing that makes it so different now, but yet the same, like the people haven't changed, the people who are involved in fandom and communities haven't changed. But in like 1967, or I don't remember when Star Trek came out, but like when people were originally writing like the Kirk and Spock's fan fiction that was like the origin of Slash, they were alone in their houses and like they, had, they didn't have a way to find those other people and so they were ostracized I think in a way then that you aren't now, whereas even when I was in high school in the 90s, like it was, you kind of maybe could find one or two other people in your school who were into the same thing as you, but it was still that very niche, small communities, and maybe you found a way to connect with other people, like literally with mailing zines was one of them, or newsletters or whatever, but it was so much harder to find those people, and so now it's not so much that the communities themselves have changed, it's just that the tiny little pockets of communities have like grown into a web that's all interconnected. I guess that's why they call it a the web. A web that reaches across the wide that's world. Right, <laughs> 
um, so I, th I feel like the people haven't changed that much and like the fan fiction hasn't changed that much and none of that's changed that much. People were probably, as we established this morning, writing fan fiction about Gilgamesh, but now you can go find your Gilgamesh friends on the internet and yeah. you actually <laughs> aren't so alone in your high school or your dorm room or whatever you're doing writing your fan fiction. I think one thing that has changed though is like a lot of the stigma around fandom has decreased as fandoms have become like a bigger part of culture. And so while being a fan like 10 or 15 or, you know, going to a Doctor Who convention yeah, yeah. in the 80s yeah. might have been like kind of like a, a social. Uh, oh, yeah. There was like yeah. there was like 10 people there. Yeah. Like, <laughs> this and, is not a huge event. It wasn't something you would brag about at no. school. Yeah. So I think there's uh, it's cool that the world has become a lot more open to fans just being geeky and celebrating what they love. Wasn't it on Parks and Rec where Ben Wyatt was like, nerd culture is now just culture? It's like yes. mainstream culture? Yes. That was a great moment. Yeah. Ben Wyatt was like the greatest character ever. <laughs> <Pretty bad>. <laughs> <laughs> Got a crowd there. Um, okay, so let's talk about how we manage that web of people, I guess. Because all of you play pretty integral roles in community cultivation, whether you think so or not, you know, as performers and producers and organizers of things. So what are your responsibilities as a person that's cultivating that community? I want to hear about the cruise community. Yeah. <laughs> it skews a lot older, um, <laughs> except for our group. Uh, well, I am much older than most of the people in this room, or certainly at least older, if not much. Um, and the, the single thing, uh, this is somewhat related to the, the previous question, the thing that to me has changed fundamentally uh, regarding fandom and, and fan bases and your communities is that the communication pathway is no longer one directional, it's no longer you know, our original, my, for, uh, Storm and I were in a band called Da Vinci's Notebook that started in 1994. Thank you very much. References. Uh, our mailing list was an actual mailing list. We would sit around and cut out postcards from a sheet of paper and we would stick a stamp on that postcard and we would send it out and hope people that would come to the shows that were being advertised. If you had told us, and this was, you know, 1995, if you had told us within... 10 years, you won't need any of this stuff and you'll just have a list of email addresses. And oh, by the way, also there'll be these things called social media sites where they can talk to you now. Um, that, that is the part where the communication is now two-way and, and our responsibility, at least as we see it, is to give our fan base engagement that is, uh, you know, keep in touch with them regularly and give them some sense of agency uh, which is not necessarily to say that they should drive your content, uh, although they can, not necessarily that they should tell you what to do, but you should give your fan base the sense that they are being heard. Um, that's paramount to us, uh, for, you know, especially in this ridiculous world where the entire universe is available to you on a little piece of uh, you know, on this thing in my pocket wirelessly. I, and if something is boring me or something, I, I don't feel like I'm being engaged by it or, or I'm, it's not interesting to me, I can go to anything else. Uh, and so part of our job is keeping people interested by keeping them a part of the system somehow, whether that is through a Kickstarter or just through talking back and forth on Twitter. And, and it's things like that that... Um, that I love about the job myself. Yeah, I think that that's a, artists now are recognizing like, artists and creators are recognizing that value of having like a really engaged and uh, fandom that kind of like also pushes the artists in one way. And I think to, to play off that, one of the things I'm really invested in, both with my work with Harry and the Potters and more primarily with the Harry Potter lines is looking at ways to like deconstruct the, the like power structures within fandom um, and I think that when fans have that agency that you were talking about, like that creates a much more vibrant and interesting fandom when fans feel encouraged to create and when they feel like their voice is heard and when they can rally around causes, I think is uh, probably what I view as the most interesting aspect of fandom is bringing, bringing that community together for a purpose. One thing I find really interesting, and I'm not sure where it's gonna go from here, is that 
you know, prior to the internet, we were all offline and our communities were face-to-face. -face. And then everything kind of went online entirely for a few years where everybody was using a pseudonym all the time. Um, and so people's like online journals back before, I don't know if any of you were, remember this, where uh, the blog community started and there was like this old school crowd who was really angry about the word blog. It was, you know, the, the, it was a strange time on the internet. Anyway, but so everything, <laughs> everything went entirely online and then it sort of evolved from there where it went from this online only community back into the real world component of it. And one of the things that's the primary role that I serve at NaNoWriMo is, is um, creating and fostering those, those in-person communities. And so um, it's turned into now where you gather online and you organize online, but then you meet in person, and so it gives this extra layer of depth to your relationships where you find the people that you connect with online, and then you meet them in person, and your relationships are so significant because you might have been coming from a place where of, I thought it was only me, and then there are these people standing face to face with you, and it's not only you, and it's like these really powerful communities that get built from this connection that just didn't exist before the internet. Oh yeah, um, I mean, I, I don't know, I feel like I'm kind of a Luddite compared to uh, a lot of people here in that, like I only recently signed up for Twitter. Uh, um, and it was because of Night Vale. It was, it just, I, I never had that, that desire to like, you know, like share every, every the, the like tiny minutia of my life online. I, I don't know, it just never really appealed to me and then, you know, as Night Vale became more and more of a thing, people were like, well, you know, you've got to, like you said, you, you, know, like you have this responsibility to the fans of Night Vale to, you know, tell them what you had for breakfast this morning. <laughs> and what kind of, you know, spread did you put on your bagel? And this is important content and information so people can then, you know, fan art about it. And Do you get a lot of bagel fan art? I, I, I probably will after this. Uh, <laughs> So what, um, and, what did you feel, have on your bagel this morning? Uh, what did I, uh, just, no, no bagel this morning. <laughs> All driving this morning. Um, I don't know, I feel, it's interesting, like what is the responsibility of the creator uh, to the fan is a really interesting and kind of sticky question because in my mind, the responsibility of the creator is to create. Your job is to create good art. Um, and, and when it comes to the fandom, uh, that's, I almost see it as like a very kind of separate entity that, you know, almost doesn't involve me as much. Like, I, I feel like fandom, you know, if you were to like break down the meaning of the word, the fan is the royalty of the fandom, uh, not the creator. You know, it's a kingdom, it's, it's run by the fans. Um, and I don't know where, you know, the creator fits into that. I mean, I, you know, I can certainly, I love sharing experiences and, you know, um, I mean, I'm like an amateur photographer, so Instagram is totally like, I, I love that. Um, but that's my passion. And, you know, I had that passion long before Night Vale came along and, you know, I would be doing that if Night Vale had never come along. Um, so it's, I, I don't see that as a responsibility to the fans of Night Vale to, constantly maintain that. Um, I mean, my own personal thing is I like to keep fans up to date on what I'm doing, you know, in case you're interested, but, you know, that's, that's kind of it. Like, I, I don't know what the responsibility, therefore, is. Well, you yep. do have, like, an eye into kind of the agency, as they were talking about before, and maybe uh, fandom control in terms of... Uh, I don't know, fans want to see something happen in a narrative and they're waiting to see that thing happen. And um, does the producers and the creators like sway to do that for them or do they want to do what is, um, what, what is the, what they've said and doing all along? I mean, I can't, I can't speak for, you know, everyone who works on Night Vale, sure. but I feel like uh, that kind of immediacy is, can sometimes be detrimental to the creative process. You know, if you have, you know, 500,000 people saying, oh my God, you know what you need? You need this thing because it's a thing that I love and you should totally write a story about it. Like, all of a sudden, what, you know, you're making is, is taken out of your hands. And it's, you know, if you try to, like, anticipate every, you know, kind of whim of somebody with a Twitter handle, you know, what, what ultimately are you going to be making? 
you know. Like, can you crowdsource art? Yeah, can you, I mean, like, I, I may feel like Joss Whedon is, like, kind of the most famous, you know, example of that, where he's just like, you all think you know what comes next? You don't know anything. <laughs> I'm going to do the opposite of what you think just because I'm Joss Whedon, you know? But that, that's almost, me. like, circled back on itself now, where it's like, oh, he's going to Joss that person. Mm. Like, he's basically turned himself into a verb, right? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I, I think it's, you know, for, as a creator, like, you just have to kind of be true to yourself. You know, and it's nice to get input. I mean, I certainly read every comment and I, and I either wince or I go, yeah, right on. Um, but ultimately, it's, it, it's the, the creation of art is kind of driven by the artist, not by, you know, unless you're in some like weird Medici kind of, you know, situation where someone's like, unless you make it like I want you to make it, then there is no funding, you know. Um, I feel like in this day and age, like you just kind of got to, tell your story and be true to yourself and let everyone else sort it out. I, I would totally agree with that, but I also think there are some really great instances of creators who really do engage with their community in like substantive ways, like John and Hank Green. Um, and uh, I think that is also like a really big opportunity to create something unique um, when those artists will sort of seize that moment, they recognize that like we have this community of engaged people who really love what we do, and what can we do with them um, that makes this community better? And so what John and Hank do is they will like pick out projects happening within Nerdfighteria and signal boost them or whatever, and that kind of goes towards including everybody in the project and makes it feel like you're working towards something. You know, like Project for Awesome comes around once a year and all nerd fighters are in on it, and it's great, you know? So yeah, I, mean, I do think there's opportunities. Yeah, yeah the, the creator absolutely shouldn't be the boss of the fandom, nor should they be beholden to the fandom, but you do have the opportunity to sort of steer the discussion in certain ways, like what, with what Paul does. You know, we have, all have the same enthusiasm. How about we, point, we point all this enthusiasm at this particular cause that I think is relevant to everybody's interests. Um, and so to the extent that is a responsibility to do something other than just sit there and go, thank you, love me more, um, then I guess you could call that a responsibility. And Night Vale's actually one of, like, been, been responsive on the content side when they got called on diversity as an issue in the, in the podcast, right? So that's a, one of the best examples I know of where uh, creators kind of got called out and they made a change where they, they recast. Um, yeah. I don't even know if we got called out. I think they oh. literally just went, uh, it was just like a one-time thing. Oh, and they it? were like, they're like, we can't, like, I think Joseph and Jeffrey were like, yeah. we literally can't make this happen anymore uh, the way it stands. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, like as, you know, behavior modeling may be one of the best things that a creator can do. You know, like if, if I'm into something that I feel is really important and sharing that with the fans, that, you know, kind of lends a light to it. Um, you know, like, like kind of what you said, like pointing people towards what you think is important. One of the things I think is so effective about the internet, especially though, is that there's room for like all the different models. Like there's room for fan for creators who like literally have nothing to do with their fans. And there's like, is it Anne Rice who really hates fan fiction? Is it her? She's the one who like sues people when they write fan fiction. Like you have that end of the spectrum, and then you have like the far extreme on the other side where you have like Maureen writing complicated fan fiction about Hank and John, and like. <laughs> <laughs> but, so then you've got like those are the two extremes, but then you've got everything in between, and you can kind of figure out you can figure out as a creator where you want to fit in that. But then the fandoms also have all of that sort of range of opportunity for what kind of community they want to have. And even if they have a creator that's like, I don't want to have anything to do with you guys, they can be like, well, we're just going to go start a Tumblr and talk to our, each other and not you. And there's just so much opportunity to figure out how it works for the creator's role in that, but also just the community they can. Yeah, I feel like I fit in the creeper role of that, <laughs> um, in that I have a Tumblr, but nobody knows what it is. Yes. Um, <laughs> Because I like to creep. I like to know what's going on. I am also a Tumblr creep. Yeah, like I like to keep my finger on it. But at the same time, I feel like, again, it's like the fandom is for the fans. You know, like it's not, it's not up to me to, to swoop down and be like, yes, you are correct. Ha ha ha. Or you are incorrect, squash. You know, like <laughs> um, I, I, I almost like the sort of 
remove that it allows me to kind of watch what's happening and kind of watch as uh, certain themes and and trends kind of come and go. I find that much more fascinating than kind of getting in on the action and sort of being like, you know, the, the cop, you know, like the like, this is good, this is bad, this is more, this is less. Um, yeah, I think it's more interesting just to kind of let it all play out and just see how that happens organically, yeah. you know? Do, do you, many you, of you work in community growth, per se? Or do you just let things organically happen? Do you actively make decisions that you know is going to grow your individual communities? We're constantly trying to create more regions for NaNoWriMo. We have in-person regions led by local volunteers. and. This year we have 925 volunteers in I think about 650 regions around the world and we are constantly trying to have more of those and we actively, it's a lot of people. Um, I get a lot of email. Um, but we're constantly trying to engage with, with people to build those communities in more places and create those communities in more spaces because the communities that form out of that are transformative for everybody involved. And we have a community partnership program where we work with libraries and bookstores and other community spaces to help them make um, their environment more welcoming to writers. And that's, so we kind of, we almost work on both sides of it where we're trying to build the spaces for the people to come to and then we're trying to get the people into those spaces and help the people find each other. So we're, I would say like 80% of my job is mm. community building. The other 20% is answering people's questions on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> which is community building of a sort. Yeah, well, I mean, with the Harry Potter lines, it's very similar. We're, we're trying to um, bring more people to our work, and we do that in a, in a pretty similar way to Sarah, where we have um, different Harry Potter lines chapters all over the country, all over the world. Um, and that's a great place for young people to like learn a lot of leadership skills, and they, they become essentially community organizers in their own communities. And, and that kind of multiplies the effect of any work we're doing, mm -hmm. kind of like anytime you see us doing a campaign online, um, that gets multiplied, you know, 250 times over when we have chapters working in their own communities to do work. So, well, and for yeah. the HPA and NaNoWriMo, we have a lot in common. And the yeah. biggest thing that we have in common is that word of mouth is our strongest tool. That we can do, we could Facebook advertise or take out billboards or do whatever, but there's nothing we can do that is as powerful as people talking about their experiences with NaNoWriMo. And that's part of why I think that our growth was so exponential was that as the internet took off, you know, we were very early on Twitter, we were very early on lots of, of social media sites that then uh, gave us the opportunity to kind of build those communities from the ground up. So like when I started on our Twitter account, we had like a couple of thousand followers and we were really, and you know, so it was, it's a really good way to, to get that growth happening when it's, when you're a part of it right from the start. Yeah, I feel like that's probably common across the board in that, you know, I, I think we're all very savvy these days about being marketed to. Um, I know I am where, you know, if I go see a movie, I'm like, oh, this movie was brought to me by Pepsi and IHOP <laughs> and Chevrolet, um, which, you know, is fine. I, I just think I'm very good at spotting it and feeling like, well, yep, there, there, there we go. There's the machine working, working its magic on me. Um, but if, you know, like my mom was to go out and get a Chevrolet and be like, oh my God, this car is amazing. <laughs> I would think so much stronger about buying that thing or, you know, and in, you know, the way of, you know, like finding things online, you know, it's this idea of, you know, you can viral market on Facebook or Twitter and, you know, it's all just a pop-up these days. But, you know, if a friend of yours is like, oh my God, I found this thing and it's the best new video series, then it, that's going to lend so much more credibility to actually taking the time and watching it and getting involved. Um, and I feel like that's, you know, that's where like a lot of this information sharing and like is really the most powerful, you know, and that's where like these communities that do build up around, you know, uh, uh, entertainment or, you know, activism, you know, that's where like we have the power to like really hit major success, you know, because you do something good, you find something good and you want to share it. And, and it comes from a very natural and organic place rather than a, you know, somebody sitting in an office brainstorming about like, what buzzwords can we use to get this thing out there that the kids are gonna be really into, you know? Like, it, I don't know, it just feels very fal false, you know? I, uh, I would be remiss if I did not point out at this point that uh, 
Storm and I are working on our next album. It is going to be 13 songs all about the incredibly delicious and wonderful and wholesome food we have regularly from Carl's Jr. (laughs) See, Carl's Jr. is like, yes, thank you. Oh, my God, thank you. I I think, oh, sorry. I was was just saying I was totally bought there. I believe that that's what you were doing. By the way, they also make very delicious shakes. (laughs) Um, Brought to you by Carl's Jr. That's such an interesting, like the relationships between brands and communities is so interesting to me. Um, and I just read an article the other day that talked about um, things that you think are sponsored that might not be. And like the the example they used was Apple, because you see Apple computers are always very prominently placed. But those are almost never like sponsored things. Those are just people actually wanting to have an Apple product. And Apple like doesn't pay to do that because they don't need to. Um, but one place I find that so interesting was... Um, uh, John Stewart always did his Arby's bits on The Daily Show, and it was he was always making like these horrific jokes about Arby's and how terrible it was for you. And then on his last episode, Arby's like put out a special John Stewart commercial, and I just found that a really interesting way to like integrate a brand. For like, I thought that was the smartest brand idea for like tapping into a community that was. I don't know, just a really unusual way to, to think in a forward fashion that you don't usually see from brands. Because I feel like brands are always like 20 years behind the party where they're like, hey, have you guys heard about this MySpace business? It's, oh, it's going to be big. And <laughs> I, I work at a, a video production company during the day, and I work with a lot of agencies. And so when you're dealing with agency clients, you hear like, how can we reach out to those people, mm. you know, and they, they just have no clue that, like, we're not looking for that kind of reaching. If you just do it, we're going to just deal with it yeah. kind of thing. If it's good, if it's good, people will find it, you know. Right, right. So let's talk about, like, some of our favorite stuff. So what are, what are, what are our favorite fandoms or story-oriented communities? And this can be online or off that kind of enable audiences to engage. I feel like libraries don't get enough credit. Um, um, before I worked for NaNoWriMo, I worked for a public library for seven years, and you, there are way too many people who are like, nah, you don't need libraries anymore, that's why we have the internet. And it's like, libraries are not what they were in 1972. You know, they've, they've, libraries are much better than brands at, at keeping up with the times. And so um, I feel like that's something that is underrated and sort of flies under the radar for ways to form those communities and those creative communities because libraries have no ulterior motive other than bringing people together and they have they don't know they never have enough money to do it but they have lots of enthusiasm and all they have is that enthusiasm to bring people together but because they're not trying to sell you anything or do anything their intentions are usually very pure and so I feel like Anytime you're trying to get some sort of community going or have some sort of event happen or b- bring people together, like start at your library and like talk to them about it and use that, use that to form your communities and use the resources available to you because, man, librarians are like the greatest. They're just so enthusiastic about things. <laughs> I'm not just pandering to the librarians in the crowd. <laughs> I've been kind of fascinated. This is going to sound pandering like everything else I say, but I've been... <laughs> Very fascinated with the growth, even just in the past three to five years, especially of podcasting uh, and fiction podcasts like Night Vale or uh, another one of my favorites is Thrilling Adventure Hour. Uh, Yeah. Uh, I mean, this is literally, if not quite the same technology, the same medium that we had back in 1920. It's radio. And people are listening to radio in 2015 and getting excited about it and dressing up as the characters that they like. It's just like the kids sitting in front of the old radio in the living room with this Howdy Doody hat on or, or something like that. I just, I love that, you know, everything old is new again. It's a cliche, but it's true. And I, I love the fact that an audio medium uh, can capture people's attention still uh, in, in this modern day and age. Do you, do you think it's just because people are trying to get like away from the screen a little bit more? I don't I, like. I'm trying. No, I I think that's totally true. Like, in an age where like we're totally like inundated with like visuals now, it's like maybe people are looking to escape. I'm 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 fascinated by that as well. Do you think it's because only... traffic got worse? Like, do people spend more time commuting now than they used to? And like like that's like that's like a legitimate theory that people spend people are more likely to have longer commutes and spend more time in transit or whatever. I wonder if that's a part of it. 
yeah. the suburb, the rise Maybe. of the suburbs is the reason for, <laughs> for the popularity of podcasting. So is, is there anything that th these like that these podcasts are doing particularly well to cultivate something? Like, what's what's Night Vale doing that's so great? Hmm. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I I mean, it's it, it it's all of it. Um, I mean, it definitely. Listen, you know, as as someone who you know, uh, is very realistic about the entertainment industry. Like, I recognize that I am not, uh, like, I have, a, I have a face for radio, is what I'm trying to say. Um, but it, I, I feel like because of the podcast, the medium, like, when you take out the visual aspect of things, you really are kind of left with a very pared-down, simple, like, like, sharp, like a knife kind of edge. And, and that allows the listener to fully invest themselves into whatever it is they're uh, engaging in. You know, I feel like if you watch a TV show, it's all down to, oh, their hair looks great, but, oh, I don't know, the acting is not so, uh, you know, or, oh, man, I really like the look of this show, but what is the show really about? Uh, and I feel like podcasts, you know, you kind of strip that away. You're stuck with just the idea. Yeah, it's the idea, and it's, you know, in, in, it's the performance, it's the writing, it's, you know, um, you know, there is some audio production involved, but it's not terribly complicated compared to, you know, like something huge, big budget TV. Um, and I don't know, I kind of like that. I feel like it, and that is kind of spreading amongst people that are like, well, hell, I, you know, I never thought I would be TV pretty either, but I can share this story and people will engage with it because once you do take away that visual, it, it maybe removes some of the prejudice that people have um, based on looks and, you know, mm -hmm. like the, anything remotely, you know, connected to that. I don't know, I just find that really fascinating and kind of refreshing in a way. And I, I was telling her earlier that the storytelling audience, the people that listen to things like that, are the most supportive, friendliest audience on the planet. Because they think of you when you're up there or you're listening to them, like, you know, telling a story, whether it be funny or uh, just makes, makes you want to cry, like, it... It, they, they think of you as one of them. It, you are one of them, and they don't put you up on this kind of giant pedestal yep. thing. And so they want to support you. They, they want to root for you because they see themselves in you as well. So. How long do you think it's going to be before the pod in podcast, like iPods are going to be so far removed that nobody's going to know where the origin of the word. Like, I, feel like, I feel like we're getting away from iPods well, I mean, already, right? The save button on Microsoft Word is still a floppy disk, yeah, which exactly. nobody has used in 15 years. So you tell me how long. <laughs> but nobody knows what that is now, right? Like the 15-year-olds look at that and they're like, ah, the old floppy disk. Yeah. Like, ah, it's just, they're like, oh, that's a save button. Yeah. Or like the phone button on, on a yeah. phone is still a cradle handset yeah. that, again, your grandma might have. Yeah, yeah. I just have one more question before we get to the audience. So what do we have left to see from current or future communities or fandoms? Or, you know, just to go another way, like what, what could we do as communities better? I am very excited about that question. Um, uh, one thing I like seeing is where uh, fans start to recognize their power and they start to make changes in their own fan communities. And uh, I've gone to a few conventions, some good, some bad. And what I've seen at the good ones are like, like really welcoming atmospheres and safe environments and stuff like that. And when I see the bad ones are places where like there's misogyny and homophobia or whatever and like no representation of people of color and all these, all these things, and you know these things exist, um, but people still go to those conventions but don't do anything about them. And what I look forward to seeing is when this younger, newer, more open and accepting generation of fans start to change those existing fandoms and make those convention environments better. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. One of the things I like best about like what is fandom gonna do next is I have no freaking idea and I love that. Like the things, the t top 10 biggest things in fandom in the last 10 years, I don't think anybody was gonna predict those and that's what's so great about it is that it's like it's not gonna be our idea that's like, oh, the next big thing, someone else is gonna come up with it and it's gonna be really great. 
Man, I hope that there's, I mean, I agree with what you're saying, Paul. Like, um, uh, you know, I went to this convention called um, uh, Geeks Out, uh, which was like the first uh, sort of gay comic con in New York, I think the first. Um, and it was, and it was like so incredibly welcoming to not just the LGBT community, but kind of to everyone across the spectrum. And I think that's hopefully where we're headed is connecting not just a group that you identify with, but kind of like reaching across the aisle and finding other people that you may not be a part of, but you can recognize pieces of yourself in and be like, we're all fans, we're all kind of in this together. And I think it's, you know, like I think that is where kind of the, the magic of the internet comes from, is being able to step outside yourself and see the world through different eyes. Yeah, stories, you know? empathy. Right. It's like it's we're like we're becoming like and we're becoming like empathy superheroes. <laughs> you know? Um, and I think like and the internet is really kind of tipping that off in that like in a way that you couldn't, you know, going to a Doctor Who convention in the eighties, you know, it, it, like it it puts a lot of that up front in your face. And you know, there's gonna be some growing pains, but I think ultimately that's gonna be kind of our triumph, you know, is kind of connecting people to things that they, it's not a box that they would tick, but they're like, but I now know what that other box is and I have an idea about what it must be like to be in that, in that uh, sort of, you know, area. Um, and I think that's it. Like, we just need to build those bridges. And I think I that, the, like, one thing that HPA is doing that's so effective is taking those bridges offline and into the real world and t taking it from, like, we're going to be a safe space and have a code of conduct and e expectations around behavior at a convention and then taking that to, like, I'm going to have those same expectations for people in my life and, yeah. like, calling people out on misogyny or racism or what have you or you know, getting your, your friends registered to vote and like turning that into real world activism I think is so effective because the energy you can harness from fandom is just mind blowing, like my God. One, one little follow up to what I just said. Uh, I'm just curious, like how many people uh, traveled to be here and aren't from like Minneapolis or Minnesota? Yeah. Cool, so like there's lots of conventions that happen in your area and if you ever go, like one way to make change at conventions and in the real world is to volunteer and make sure that like you help create a safe space at those conventions and make sure that those conventions have a code of conduct and when you see misconduct, make sure it gets reported and the people responsible get thrown out. Okay, great. Let's open up to questions. Keep in mind this is a podcast, or not podcast at all. This is a panel about uh, communities. So uh, let's keep it community. Actually, in the middle of this panel, I have started my own podcast. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, check in the yellow shirt right there. That's a really good question. I'm not. <laughs> Such a good question that I was gonna. This goes. It's also my oh. Ah. <laughs> okay then. Well then. <laughs> well then, you tell us. <laughs> not sure it is that the medium necessarily has much to do with it as much as it is the particular content. Yeah. I mean, we could go back to talking about, say, for example, you know, a podcast like Night Vale has a certain immediacy because, you know, Cecil's not this guy on a screen. He's this voice whispering in your ear and it, it feels closer to you somehow. Uh, but that's as much for, you know, a, in my opinion, that would be as much the, the nature of the content as it is the medium itself. So I, I couldn't say necessarily myself if, if a medium really has much of a deterministic factor as far as generating fan base, other than possibly 
Um, if it's something like a YouTube video or, or something that's online, uh, it's so much easier to share it with others. Uh, that aspect may, may be something I, I would grant that helps uh, a fan base develop Quickly. There, are, there are lots of podcasts that don't have like that huge community, and I think one part of it is like the world that the, the creative medium inhabits is a huge part of it. Like some television shows live in a very small world. I don't mean like in the Disney world sense of it, but like the 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 the, the existence is is narrow, and so there's not that scope to create that a lot of other medium or a lot of other um, creative properties will have, and so. Not always, and I think some of it is frankly dumb luck um, and timing and hitting the zeitgeist at the moment when people are thinking about that. But I think some of it is the scope of what you're looking at, where you know, Harry Potter hit a moment where we were all kind of hungry for something to latch onto, and it, create, it gave us this world that was so huge that we could all inhabit it and not feel hemmed into this tiny little box that she'd created. And so that gave us the, the room to play with. Whereas, I don't know, um, Diane Duane wrote a book, a series called So You Want to Be a Wizard that had a lot of similarities with Harry Potter and she, she gets a lot of, um, she gets brought up a lot in, in academic classes about Harry Potter, about like what came before Harry Potter. And she, that, but that never took off in the same way and some of that was because her setting was the real world and so there wasn't this magical universe to exist in but part of it was just the timing that she, her books came before the internet, her books came before. And so I think it's a combination of like the content and the timing and the mood like we've all, we're, I feel like Marvel might be on a bit of like, maybe people are getting a little bit over Marvel, so what's gonna be the next big movie thing to take over the world? Because we've all kind of burnt out a little bit on superheroes, so what's gonna be next? And who's gonna be the first one to like, get their foot in the door as everybody's leaving the room from the comic book world? And not that I think people are gonna stop reading comics, but just like the one, as people move on from one niche, who's gonna catch the next wave that comes into? Sure. I think serialized storytelling really helps foster fandom. Mm. to give people like a break between stories to be creative and respond to it. So certainly podcasts like Night Vale do that really well. But also like, you know, in Harry Potter, the the big gap between book four and five was is generally known as like the like most fertile creative period for fandom because there was three years where nothing happened, but just like tons of fan speculation and fan fiction and that's when our band started, you know? So um yeah, I think that, that storytelling type kind of lends itself. That really makes me wonder if like Dickens had people writing fan fiction in between yeah. chapters. Like right. if people were like too impatient to wait for the next chapter. She says of yes. <laughs> oh, oh, you're not a scholar? Okay. <laughs> Do any Dickens scholars? Yeah. No. No. We have questions? <laughs> okay. Get... Green jacket. <laughs> um, I mean, I always, uh, I feel like the do not engage, do not feed the trolls is kind of your first step, I mean, at least my first step. Uh, I, I had the really weird experience of actually dating a troll for a while. <laughs> No, like, really. Literally? Was, yeah, no, literally. I, I dated a guy who loved nothing better than to throw gasoline on fires on the internet. And it was really kind of interesting getting to like watch him operate. And I would just sit back and be like, you're, you know you're a horrible person, right? <laughs> and he'd be like, yeah, but it's so much fun. Um, and that relationship did not last. Um, <laughs> because he was a horrible person. <laughs> Um, I mean, I, I think, you know, the do not engage thing is, I mean, for me, is ultimately the best. Like, I, I realize I'm in kind of a different place than, than a, you know, you're, you're, let's say, you know, like someone who's young and impressionable and kind of figuring it all out. Um, I just don't have the freaking time to deal with people who are horrible. Um, but I think, you know, building up communities around yourself that are positive that kind of to combat that. So when you, man, make use of that block button, just do not engage. Mm -hmm. Like if someone's being a, just like a horrible person online, like remove that person from your online life, you know, like cut it out. Like don't, don't try and change their mind or like, you know, you know, get in there and think that, oh, you're doing good work. Um, 
because chances are they that's the reaction that they want. They want you to kind of convince them to come to the light and knowing full well that it's, it's probably not going to happen. Um, as for like positive change, I think you just have to kind of surround yourself with fan communities that support you, you know, and, and you can kind of go to and, you know, kind of be like, man, this person was really terrible to me online. I've removed the problem and then, you know, kind of rebuild in its wake. I don't know. That's that's the best advice I have. You know? I think there's kind of two kinds of people who get really angry, and there's the straight up trolls, and then there's the people who would just really, really care about your community, but don't like the direction it's going in. And the trolls, you can't do anything about. Yeah. But the ones who really care but don't like the direction you're going with, we run into that a lot, especially because we're a nonprofit, and we are a primarily community-funded nonprofit where most of our donations come from our participants, and so people will donate and then. If they don't like a direction that we're going, they can get really, really angry about it. And so we get a lot of angry mail about that. And the best tool we have to combat it is my colleague, the, our editorial director, is literally the most positive person I have ever met in my life. And so if we get a real jerk, we just sick Tim on them. And he is so nice that he can like transform trolls into the billy goats crossing the bridge instead because he's just so nice. But um, what we found is the biggest key for us um, in sort of combating that anger is, is information. People just want to understand why you're making your choices. And so if we get an angry letter, which we do periodically, not very often, um, saying, what the hell are you doing with my money? Then we'll write back with like information about what we are doing with their money. And I think that people just want to understand and they want to feel heard in that kind of case. And the trolls don't care about being heard. They just want to make a scene. But the people who are just upset we always tell ourselves if our biggest problem is that people love us so much that they're mad about it, that's a good problem to have. Yeah. Also, if you're, if you're dealing with it, not just having a community around you, if you're dealing with trolls, have a, a personal community around you, like a physical, have some, have an accountability partner tell, so that you can tell if something's happening. Because nothing's worse than just sitting there on Twitter by yourself looking at all this crap and nobody else is aware of it. So tell someone, report them, yeah. um, you know, tell your friends. <laughs> uh, how about, um, all the way back there in the red. All right, so, so for someone who is trying to become a community leader in a very niche fandom, what would you say to them? Because I'm trying to become one of the um, female leaders in the world of sports because, I mean, being a female and liking sports, you're already subjected to so much sexism and misogyny. It's a little ridiculous, especially in the past summer from the NHL. So what can you say to someone who's trying to become a community leader in this very small fandom of people aren't really listening? I will say quickly, this is probably going to be the last question. Sorry, I didn't tell you before. Um, I just want to, first of all, express my sympathy for being an NHL fan this summer, because I, too, am an NHL fan, and it was not a good year for us. Um, but the first thing I would say is find, find your specific community of like-minded people. Like, find the other women who like the same sports as you, especially in a, in a niche like that, where it is so brutally misogynistic at time, and like... It's, it's, and it, 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 the, the tide is turning slowly, but it's like turning a school bus that's chained to 15 other school buses. It's a very slow process. It's like turning this room. <laughs> no, this room has a track and a system and a person, and it's very well organized. And this is, um, so, but I think finding, and like this is where the internet is your friend, obviously, is like finding the three other women who are interested in the same thing as you and kind of having them be your, your safe space and like mm -hmm. your, when you're getting pounded with all this crap, you can turn around and talk to them about it and know that like, you have your, your cohort that aren't horrible misogynists. And so you can kind of build yourself up that way and then slowly adding to that community and finding other, it doesn't only have to be women, finding non-jerks who are men is also a perfectly good way to go about that. Um, but just finding, kind of building up your own same equivalent community and then using that to help you build yourself up towards getting into a leadership position, I think is a good way to do it so that you're surrounding yourself with positive people who help you remember why you love what you're doing even when other people are writing horrible things about you on Twitter for you being a woman who is offensively into hockey, which is 
I will, I will also say, if you're looking for something in the physical space, meetup.com always helps, because then you can also say that you are a community leader. You can also make rules that, that, that will create a safe space in the physical environment if you're looking for something like that. So, anything else to add? Anything I missed? All right, thanks everyone. <laughs>That concludes this episode of the NerdCon Stories podcast. To keep up with news about NerdCon Stories 2016, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, or Tumblr, or check us out at nerdcon.com. Thank you for listening, and don't forget to be awesome.